So most of you that know me know that I'm very excited about today. Uh, we're starting a series called Foundations, <clears throat> and there is no end in sight. I have no idea where this is going to lead us. I mean, I know the track that I'm going to take, but I don't know how long it's going to take. And part and parcel of that would be just the need that we have for such foundations to be reestablished, even in Christendom, even in evangelicalism. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that. But before I begin, let's just start off the series by asking God's special blessing upon this. I pray that um, word gets around and people that don't even come here start listening to it online. Uh, it's available online at any time uh, because there's there's just such a great need that we have. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for turning our back on you as a nation many years ago, and we're seeing a lot of the results of that even today in our culture. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness, and we ask you to help us to lay again the foundations that are being destroyed before our very eyes. We deny you as God. We deny you as creator we deny you in our everyday lives. And Father, we're reaping the results of that. Lord, I pray that through this series that we might drive some stakes into the ground of who we are as believers, as Christians, in a world that really is under the sway of the evil one, and the whole world lies in his hand until you, Jesus, come back to take back what is yours. You are the one that is worthy to open the scroll, the deed of this earth, and to take it back over. We long for that day, but until then, help us to remind ourselves through your word what these foundations are and what we stand on and build upon. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, there's a little phrase that I, I've loved for years. It says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that word foundations there, uh, I think it's only used there and possibly once in Isaiah. And it means pillars or col columns. But figuratively, it refers to nobles, as nobles would stand as pillars for society. Uh, established institutions of community, social and civil order can be understood as those foundations. And those nobles who defend what is right, what is wrong, and talking about what is wrong. So I'm using the verse today to show the principle of what can the righteous do when the theological and moral foundations have been destroyed. Going away from the word of God. Think of that period that we call the Dark Ages, 500 A.D. to 1500 or so. What was really a mark during that time is that even in the church that then was, the Catholic Church, they dissuaded people, the common man, from reading the scriptures, telling them, you know, you're just uh, not educated, you're not, you're not able to understand the scriptures, let us, the elite priests, uh, do that. They're in cahoots with the, the leaders of nations at that time. And, and so we entered what is called the Dark Ages when the Bible was set aside. And people were illiterate. A lot of them were illiterate, couldn't even read. 
But the common folk were encouraged not to read the Bible. And you know what happened in the 1500s, right? We call it the Reformation. Really what the Reformation is, is a return to the truth of God's word. That's all it is. And taking it out of the hands of the elite and uh, putting it into the hands of the common man. So I'd like to start off by just talking about once upon a time when, when we were a Christian nation. You, you understand that we are a country that was really founded on biblical principles. It was kind of unique in all of world history, and it still is unique in that sense. And you see, there was a time when we were much more uh, informed of Judeo-Christian values that we find in the scripture. Let me give you an example of John Wesley. The difference between preaching today and the preaching of John Wesley is that Wesley was a preacher of righteousness. He, he exalted the holiness of God, often in his two to three hour sermons, which he preached in the open air. He exalted the law of God. He exalted the justice of God and his wrath against sin, all sin. And he exalted the wisdom of God's requirements. And then he would turn to sinners and tell them the enormity of their crimes and the enormity of their rebellion and the enormity of their treasons and the enormity of their anarchy against their creator God. And the power of God would descend upon the audience that he preached to so that on one occasion it is reliably reported that when the people dispersed, there were 1,800 people lying on the ground fully unconscious. I have not had that result in my preaching. I'm working at it. I'm working at it. Because they had caught sight of the holiness of God under the weight of that, they had seen the enormity of their personal sin and God has so penetrated their hearts and minds that they had fallen to the ground. <laughs> but see, that whole society, the whole culture, the whole United States at that time were well aware of the Ten Commandments. They knew God as a creator and they knew that there was such a thing as personal sin. It's said of Jonathan Edwards, one who's well known during that period, God, heaven, hell, and the sinfulness of man and the beauty of the holiness and the glory of Christ and the claims of his gospel were the topics of his choice to preach upon. After his message at Enfield in July of 1741, and before the sermon was even ended, the assembly appeared deeply impressed and bowed down with awful conviction of their sin and their danger. There was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence. You see, they preached in open air, so there was just multitudes of people, thousands of people that would gather to listen to this, and there was such a disturbance of weeping at their own sin. After all that can be said of the power of love and kindness and the winning accents of mercy and the like, it remains an awful truth that men will not give any efficient attention to these things till they have been first brought to see their need of them. 
That's why we're doing foundations. We need to understand these truths. Till then, all that they hear about the mercy of God only gives them courage to neglect him. When you go to a person and you say, listen, I want to tell you God loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. You're failing to tell them that plan might be hell if they don't repent of their personal sin. You've got to bring the bad news to bear first before you can bring the good news of the gospel. But that was then. It's a distant memory, that kind of thinking, even though it was not that long ago. And this country that was built on such foundations has changed. We've got evolution and the death of accountability and the decline that we see now. Darwin, 1859, wrote his famous book, and evolution has been the most insidious enemy American culture and the West has ever cultivated. Darwin's theory effectively removed the sense of an all-powerful, ever-present creator God from the minds of the common man. Consequently, there is a pervasive sense of autonomy. Now, coupled with that autonomy is a sense of loneliness because we're no longer created by a personal God, and so there is no real personality linked to our creation. We're just an animal with you know, urges like other animals and so forth, and we die and we go into the ground, and there's no judgment or anything like that. It's a frightening feeling of rootlessness and despair in those who do not believe in God. And there is no personal accountability before a creator because the creator has been erased. Now, that was 1859 when Darwin wrote that book and published it. And another man came along in, say, 1896 or early 1900s, Freud, and brought about a therapeutic nation made up of victims. Hard on the heels of evolution, the whole therapeutic movement has been unleashed on a culture, ours. And Jay Adams, the father of biblical counseling, said this, this model has been disseminated so so successfully that most people in our society naively believe that the root cause of difficulties to which psychiatrists and psychologists address themselves are diseases and sicknesses. Not sin, not evil, not wickedness. And we've all heard and even unwittingly used the newly contrived terms when describing the indescribable wickedness that takes place in our world. The sinfulness of contemporary culture in the West today, we, we say it's a sick society or an individual that perpetrates untold evil. We call him He's mentally ill. He's sick. Most of the time when we use terminology like this, we're identifying sinful behavior. We don't call it sin anymore. It's a natural progression to assume that sick person is incapable of helping themselves and, of course, is surely not personally responsible for their behavior. They're sick. They're sick. Jay Adams uh, once quoted a folk song depicting a trip to the psychiatrist. And if you've heard this before, bear with me. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. 
When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But now I'm happy. Now I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That, that is a mantra today, right? Nothing is personally absorbed as my personal responsibility. So consequently, there's little sense of personal responsibility for unacceptable behavior, behavior that is often played out in the most heinous acts of sin. Personal guilt is looked upon as something of our own making. When we really do feel guilt, we think it's false guilt, which is not conducive to a healthy and positive person. Don't be like that. Don't be so down on yourself. We've come so far down this road now that in 2015 there was a movie celebrated or celebrating the aberrant sadomasochistic intimate relationships between two people. I'm not even going to give you the name. Domestic earnings came in at $166,000. International, four hundred and three. dollars and a total earnings that that movie has gained is $569,651. Excuse me, $569,651,467. Celebrating sadomasochism in a relationship. A biblically illiterate society has come about with the therapeutic age and with Darwinianism. Many people in contemporary American culture, when confronted with the truth that God is a sovereign creator, that he's a holy lawgiver and yet a loving author of salvation, find these concepts alien to their thinking. Now, I've taught at a graduate level classes on evangelism and apologetics, And I did so from 1996 to 2001. And the first assignment I always give my classes is I'd have the students go out into public and do a survey, and they needed to approach at least five people and ask some questions pertaining to God, the devil, and man, and sin. Who is God? What is he like? What is his relationship to the individual person? What is your source of information, etc.? And they had to do this pre-class, and they'd come with their findings, and we'd talk about them first class. Here's a 30-year-old man's response to the survey. He's from the Central Valley of California, a salesman, and he did attend church one time when he was younger, but at this point he professed to be an atheist. The general overview of the basic answers are as follows. God. God is a pattern developed... uh, And he is a positive idea that man has made up in his mind. That's God. He's what reinforces our good behavior, which is really only us ourselves doing it. But we give it to God, give him kudos. Satan, he's a negative idea, self-created to scare us from doing things that are bad. This idea also makes us feel bad when we do act in socially unacceptable ways. Man. Well, basically, a struggling animal that hasn't reached its full potential yet. 
but generally good, yet weak. Sin. Well, sin is just negative energy. (laughs) And this is California. Everything's energy, right? It's a negative energy that is displayed in behavior that somehow hurts others or society. And and the punishment for sin is immediate in that there are damaged relationships and destroyed plans. That was a leap for me, but in this man's mind it was fine. Salvation? Well, many did not even respond. They just didn't have a category for salvation, thinking it was a peculiar concept. And some responded by saying, well, I think you're talking about self-actualization. Okay, we live in a biblically illiterate society. We really do, people. I mean, we get folks coming to Beacon of Hope all the time saying, I cannot find a church. You know how long I've been looking for a church that just preaches God's word? This is even in evangelicalism. So that is the world we once had where there was a foundation of Judeo-Christian values which is a distant memory. We are now living in a post-Christian world. I think it was President Obama that told us we are not a Christian nation, if I remember correctly. I don't have the date and the quote of that. But... The truth is, we are not a Christian nation anymore. Secular at best. Okay. Now I want to talk about the value of the book of Genesis. The need for a solid foundation. I had a Hebrew prof when I was in seminary, and a close friend of mine actually, uh, Bill Barrick. He said this, first impressions are very important. We often think of people in the way that we first meet them, and the first words of a paragraph influence the readers thinking about whether he's going to continue with that paragraph or not, or continue to read the book or not. When someone builds a house, the very first thing he does is lay a foundation. Duh. You don't start with the roof. How can you? You need a foundation to build upon. All good buildings require a good foundation. The scriptures are like a building. The foundation for the scriptures is found in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Genesis is the foundation upon which the rest of the biblical revelation is constructed. And the truth taught in Genesis carry on through the rest of the word of God. It is foundational. The teaching of the book of Genesis prepares the reader for the unfolding drama of redemption. I used to always take people to the Gospel of John, just the first chapter. And I just say, this is where a lot of Christians begin their talking to a non-believer. They say, read the book of John. If you look at the first chapter of John and just take into consideration just a little bit of the kind of biblical background you need to have to understand the first chapter of John, you will be staggered. Uh, There is so much content in there that is assumed knowledge, okay? And besides that, John is like here, and here is John. What's all this? Is this got any value whatsoever? It has incredible value. It's the foundations, right? You see, the book of Genesis is the beginning of all things, the beginning of creation and the creator. That's theology proper. We study about God there. In the beginning, God 
which means God was already present before the beginning. He is a creator. So it's the beginning of creation and the creator. It's the beginning of the earth. It's the beginning of the sun, the moon, the stars. It's the beginning of plant life and animal life, the beginning of human race. There's anthropology. Our study of anthropology, the study of man. Biblical anthropology is begun in Genesis. The beginning of marriage, the beginning of human nature, the beginning of man's sin. There's hermarchiology, the study of sin. The beginning of salvation, there's soteriology, the study of salvation. The beginning of sacrifice and offerings, the beginning of murder, the beginning of polygamy, the beginning of civilization, the beginning of technology, the beginning of worldwide judgment, the beginning of continents and oceans and of the rainbow and of the death penalty of drunkenness and incest and world nations and of languages and of Israel and God's covenants and Arab nations and the beginning of messianic prophecies, eschatology. (laughs) In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Now here's a short list of contemporary issues that are introduced to us and dealt with in Genesis. Origin matters. Where did we come from? You know the three metaphysical questions, right? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going after we die? Those are questions that have plagued men forever. Genesis answers all three of those. So origin matters. Knowing where we come from is important. How about identity issues? Knowing who we are is important. We are persons. Where did that idea of personhood come from? Well, Genesis, actually. Gender issues. Knowing what we are is important, do you think? Anybody see some aberrations taking place around us? Gender issues, purpose issues, knowing why we exist. We're told why we exist in Genesis. And relationship issues, knowing our relationships with one another is very important. Familial, marriage, parent, child, brother, sister, all of this is examined in Genesis. Now, looking into the book of Genesis... Therefore, the question of Psalm 11.3 is a crucial question. Because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If we have no foundation into which we're speaking into, what can we do? It all sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds ridiculous. And so these foundations, tell you what the righteous can do, reestablish the foundations. Take people back to the word of God. You see, there are enemies of the Genesis account. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) Darwin would be one. In this study, we'll eventually get to the text. And I heard that there's some bets going on whether I'd get to verse 1 or not today. That's right. I don't know which side you guys bet on, but we ain't getting there. (laughs) Because I need to lay a foundation for my sermons. You have to understand the passion that's driving me for this. You see, I had the just privilege of talking to people that had no foundations at all. They believed that men came from the sweat of a great rock. That's what they believed. The sweat poured down from this great rock 
somewhere up in the mountains on their little island, and it formed into a man, and that's how they came into existence. And I just, just joyed to ask them, where'd the rock come from? They had no answers. They had no foundations. So I'm passionate about this because I saw it transform a culture from beginning to end. It transformed a culture. But there are enemies of the Genesis account. First, we need to do some background. Today, I want to just expose you to the idea that Genesis is a seedbed for all the doctrines crucial to a Christian worldview, which is bound to have enemies, right? We've got enemies with a Christian worldview. I hear they're going after traditional Catholics now. Okay, I, you know, I don't get too involved in news because it takes me away from what I really need to be involved in, but hey, this is a culture that is turning more and more against Christianity and Christian views. So you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now I want to identify just some of the many attacks upon these seminal chapters, and it's my desire to help you understand how important Genesis is and what we can take God at his word for. His word is true because he is truth. Truth begins with him. We're studying this in our men's study, sharpening your sword. You, you ladies are studying it as well. He is truth, and his word is truth, John seventeen seventeen. And because he is truth, he is trustworthy. We can trust what he says. And as Romans 3, 4, Paul wrote, let God be God and every man a liar. God is true. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the literary wars, okay, against Genesis and its teaching. We're going to look at the scientific wars, but only a little bit, because if you want science, go to Ken Ham's site. Ken that is a phenomenal site. That is so, any questions you have about evolution, days of the you know, creation, anything, the flood, just go to Answers in Genesis because that is exactly what he does. And he does a marvelous job. And very, very word-centered answers. He'll take you to the word. But he also talks all about the science. So we'll talk about the scientific wars in a general sense against Genesis, the cultural wars against the book, as well as the theological and religious wars against Genesis. We'll be taking a short look at the grammatical and literary gymnastics liberal biblical scholars go through. This is the one that my wife loves. She says, why do you have to talk about those things? Because they're important. Mary? She accuses me of being more interested in this stuff than you guys are. I, don't, I, I think she's just heard it all, and she's bored. So I'm going to give her an assignment, and she's going to preach one Sunday. But there are grammatical and literary gymnastics, and we'll touch on one today, that these Bible scholars, some evangelical, go through to show us that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. It just doesn't mean that. Here's what it means, and they tell you. And we're going to look at theistic evolution, the gap theory, the day-age theory, analogical days, apparent age theory, punctuated 24-hour theory. All these are theories that militate against what the Bible just basically says in very simple language. And I, 
not going to you know, spend weeks and weeks doing this, but I'm going to touch on them so that you know that there are good, solid answers to these things. Now, I want to just mention to you, by way of example, when Adam is not really Adam. In the coming weeks, we're going to examine Genesis 1 and 2 and the implications of naturalism and Darwinian evolution. But as I said, just precious little on the scientific side, but we will be talking about that. But just to introduce one example of misunderstanding and misinterpreting Genesis 1 and 2, and the far-reaching implications <coughs> taken through that. Some, some Bible scholars don't believe that Adam was a historic figure. Some evangelical men don't believe Adam to be a historic figure. One implication of not receiving Genesis 1 through 2 as it is written, or rather interpreting it as a poetical or allegorical text, if you want an allegorical, symbolic, poetry-driven description of creation, I read one to you today from Psalm 104. Okay? You don't... That doesn't read like Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is very different. It is not poetry. And it's not allegorical, and it's not symbolic language that's supposed to teach us truth. And while embracing long ages and harmonizing their interpretations with naturalistic views, as some evangelicals now teach, they still claim that the Bible is inerrant and authoritative. You can't have it both ways. But they try really hard. One commentator put it this way, the new trend has also influenced some evangelicals who contend that it is possible to harmonize Genesis 1 through 3 with the theories of modern naturalism without doing violence to any essential doctrine of Christianity. That's impossible. That's impossible. They affirm evangelical statements of faith and they teach evangelical institutions and they insist that they believe the Bible is inerrant and authoritative, but they are willing to reinterpret Genesis to accommodate evolutionary theory. You call that theistic evolution. They express shock and surprise that anyone would question their approach to Scripture. And they sometimes employ the same sort of ridicule and intimidation Religious liberals and atheistic skeptics have always leveled against believers. They will say, you don't seriously think the universe is less than a billion years old, do you? And they try to cower you with that kind of a lofty statement. You need go no further than a website called BioLogos. BioLogos. Biologos would be front and center as a a prime representative of that kind of evangelical leader who adhere to Biologos' mission statement, which says this, quote, Biologos invites the church and the world to see the harmony between science and biblical faith as we present an evolutionary understanding of God's creation, end quote. An evolutionary understanding of God's creation. As I mentioned, some do not believe that Adam was a historic figure. In their view, the early chapters of Genesis are symbolic stories. In their view, Adam and Eve were not historical figures at all. And the early chapters of Genesis are just symbolic stories in the genre of other ancient uh, Near Eastern literature. 
One of the things that you might hear if you look into Genesis is that the first 11 are kind of like prehistory. And really history, actual history really begins with Abraham, call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So then why is Abram in chapter 11 if it turns into actual history in chapter 12? What did Abram just kind of get thrown into that metaphorical, poetical mishmash of spiritual truths that we're supposed to learn in 1 through 11? He's in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, he becomes historic. That's how simple refutation is, folks. And just because somebody's got a whole whole list of letters behind their name and they say, nah, you can't look at Genesis 1 through 11 as being, being historical. You can't look at that as, as historical literature. That was prehistory. Just do that little thing I just did. Because you tripped them up right there. What can they say? Now, they use arbitrary interpretations. The way some evangelicals interpret the scripture to say they believe in a historic Adam and Eve, but still hold to long ages and harmonize with scientific discovery, is that they place an arbitrary hermeneutic, that's interpretation, shift at Genesis 1, 26 through 7, 27, and Genesis 2, 7. And here's what they say. They say that the Bible is literal and not symbolic or allegorical literature when it comes to that text. But the text before and after is symbolic. Okay, the moon is blue, and elephants are in this room, not you people. I mean, what, you can say whatever you want to say. It's just like, where do you get that from the text? How does it just shift that quickly? Well, they've got to shift it like that in order to make sense of their, their views, right? This is to say that literal and not symbolic or allegorical literature, but the text before and after is symbolic. If everything around these verses is handled allegorically or symbolically, it is unjustifiable to take those verses in a literal and historical sense. So I'm sorry, you can't just do that because you want to. And you want to come clean with those that believe in a historical Adam and Eve. So you say, well, this part is literal and historic, but the rest of it surrounding it is allegorical and is teaching us spiritual truths. You can't do that. But they do. Oh, do they ever. You see, some suggest that God entered into the special relationship with Adam and Eve as ancient representatives of humanity about 200,000 years ago. Now, I don't know where they get that. And this was in Africa. And Genesis retells the historical event using cultural terms that the Hebrews in the ancient Near East could understand. So they were stupid and they couldn't really understand the simple word of God. In another version, defended by Dennis Alexander, Adam and Eve are recent representatives living perhaps 6,000 years ago. He gives us that, that's good. In the ancient Near East rather than Africa, I like that. And by this time, humans had already dispersed throughout the earth. So Adam and Eve are just a chosen couple out of all the people that were there. God then revealed himself specially to a pair of farmers we know as Adam and Eve. Now I always think of them standing with a pitchfork. (laughs) Real people 
whom God chose as spiritual, recent representatives for all humanity. Well, that sounds really good, right? But chapter and verse, please? How, I mean, the, the intimate description of God's creation of Adam and Eve is just thrown out. Obviously, there is nothing even close to this within the text, but you can say anything, I guess, if it would seem that you have enough letters behind your name to back it up and so you can speak with the greatest authority, right? How about death? Well, humans appeared very late in the history of life, they say. The fossil record clearly (laughs) shows, I love this, the fossil record clearly shows that many creatures died before humans appeared. I think Jay Seeger talked about that, didn't he? The reason they say that is because it's a preconceived idea that they have already that the fossils mean millions and millions and millions of years. And so those fossils go way back and then Adam and Eve are recent. However, the curse of Genesis 3 was that Adam and Eve, not the animals, should die for their disobedience. Therefore, animal death before the fall is compatible with Christian doctrine. See how slick that is? They take the section in Scripture that says, well, Adam and Eve were condemned to death. Oh, they go on and say, and that was really only spiritual death because they didn't really die. I feel like I'm writing a chapter for a a textbook on missions and trying to describe church planning in 4,000 words. And it's just like, what do you do? Where do you start? When people are saying three, two or three gathered together in his name, that's a church. So we've got thousands of churches that we've planted in the last two years. What do you, where do you go with them? I'm sorry, it's like so out there. How do you even address these things? You see, for humans, Genesis 3 and the other Bible passages may be speaking primarily of spiritual death, not physical death. Wow. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Rather than demonizing individuals, which I would love to do, because I'm sinful like you, let's look at the theological implications of verses that dispute the historicity of Adam. There are implications that reach the very foundations of the gospel. It's not just a Genesis thing. It's a Jesus thing. And here's what I want to say about that. Number one, There is a seamless strand of history from Adam in Genesis 2 to Abraham in Genesis 12. There's a seamless strand of history. It reads like historical literature because it is. You can't set Genesis 1 through 11 aside as prehistory, not in the sense of being less than historically true as we normally understand these terms. Moses deliberately connects Abraham with all the history that comes before him. Number two, the genealogies in 1 Chronicles 1 and Luke 3 treat Adam as historical. They treat Adam as historical. The ancestors of the tribes of Israel go back to Abraham and then to Adam. Many who don't believe Adam to be a historic figure, take Genesis 12 to begin real history, as I've mentioned, and Genesis 1 through 11 as prehistory, an allegory or symbolic 
which is impossible. The Abram of Genesis 11 is the same Abram of Genesis 12. You can't make that clear-cut distinction. It doesn't work. Number three, quoting from Genesis 1 and 2 as historical fact, Jesus insisted God created marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. And he uses the first couple as that example. So Jesus had it wrong too. Paul believed in a historical Adam. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, he talks about, as in one man sinned, all sinned. You have the doctrine of original sin in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 and 45 through 49. All speak about Adam as a historic figure and a relationship to sin that we have through Adam. Number five, without a historical Adam, Paul's doctrine of original sin and guilt doesn't hold together. And he uses it as an argument in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says this, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man disobedience, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's Bible truth from Romans. Number six, without a historical Adam, Paul's doctrine of the second Adam, or the last Adam, does not hold together. 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. What do you think he's talking about? The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. I mean, you mess with Adam at the beginning, you're messing with Bible truth. That everybody up until these recent men took for granted. So, a real historic Adam is essential to the gospel. The Apostle Paul inseparably connected Jesus to Adam And Jesus came to rectifying the damage done by Adam. Adam brought sin and death into the world, and Jesus brought righteousness and life into the world. And the good news of the gospel cannot be properly understood without understanding the bad news of Genesis chapter 3. It's why the gospel is. We're all sinners in need of a Savior because we inherited our sin nature from Adam and have rebelled against God just as he did. No, Adam... No gospel. No Adam, no gospel. If Adam and the fall are not historical, then Jesus died for a mythological problem, and he is a mythological savior offering us a mythological hope. Folks, this is important stuff, and it's worthy of taking a whole sermon to just establish that fact with you. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? re-establish the foundations. That's what we are to do. And that's what we want to set about to do. 1 Corinthians 3.11 is instructive here. And I love this. And believe it or not, I just discovered it this week. Psalm 11.3, 1 Corinthians 3.11. I can remember this now forever. This works. 
1 Corinthians 3.11 says this, No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I always tell you, it always comes back to Jesus, and it does. And you say, well, how does Jesus have anything to do? What are you talking about Genesis and Jesus? Well, in Colossians 1.16, it just happens to say, For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And it does all come back to Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. And he tells us how he laid the foundation of all things that we can relate to, including him, in Genesis. And with that, I rest my case, and we can go to the game. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and we just so, so look together to going through these early chapters of Genesis, to understanding why we say they're foundational to Christian doctrine, every Christian doctrine there is. Genesis is a seedbed for that doctrine, and we thank you for that, Lord. And Father, the contemporary issues we're just seeing um, as such a troublesome thing today all go back to the fact that we're leaving the foundations that we have in Genesis. So, Lord, help this to be a great series that's greatly encouraging and also preparing us to give an answer for the hope that's within us, Lord. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.